Welcome to Samford University's Campus Worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation. <laughs> well, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? That is low. Give me a second. <laughs> well, if I've not had the pleasure of meeting you before, my name is Rob, and I'm a senior, and my days are numbered. There are gallons of milk that'll last longer than my college career, and that's terrifying. Um, but if I've never met you, I'm Rob. It's good to be here with you this morning. If you've not been to Campus Worship yet this semester, you should know that the theme for this semester is hope and healing. So we've been zeroing in on that topic, and it just so happens that the Bible has a lot to say about hope and healing. In fact, I think that it's probably the, the number one thing that it has to say. So to keep things simple this morning, we're just going to focus on uh, the whole Bible. So start with me at the very beginning. In Genesis 1, we're going to start reading. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, before we go on and finish the rest of the Bible, we're going to need to pause here, and we need to think for a minute and picture what God is talking about right now. Okay? We have wind and we have waves swirling around in darkness. No end, no form, just pure chaos and nothing, nothing holding it together. Here's a little tip for this morning. Keep the wind and the waves and the darkness in your mind because they're going to come back up. Remember that wind, waves, darkness, all that equals chaos, okay? So let's keep reading. In verse 3, picking up, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then skipping down to verse 6, let there be an expanse in the waters and let the waters separate the waters. Now, most religions have a creation story. Almost all religions have a creation story. But most of them all have something to do with, like, this huge battle happening, and all the dead army becomes the earth, or one god kills another god, and that god's body becomes the earth, or this dragon is slain, and his tears become the stars. There's all kinds of crazy creation stories, all of which, almost all of which, have something violent that is cataclysmic that starts the earth. But what does the Bible show us? We have a very different creation story than just about every other religion. How does it begin? With just a word. That's all God needed to create the world. Just a word. God took the chaos of the wind and the waves swirling around in the darkness, and with only one word, that word is be, he called them into order. It's not violence that caused creation, it's healing. It's healing. It's restorative. That's the picture of creation that we have in our Bible. So that's our first major truth for this morning, if you're taking notes. God's word in creation had the power to heal. That's our first major truth this morning. God's word created order out of the chaos that preceded light, the earth, all of that. But I don't need to tell you that just because God called the chaos into order, that this world is not chaos-free. I mean, there's a reason that we still call nature the wild. It is still chaotic to some degree. I love camping. I, I love being out in nature, but I do not want to be face-to-face with a bear. Why? Because they're scary, and I don't want to get eaten. And I love the beach, but I don't want to be floating in the middle of the Atlantic at night by myself. Why? Because that's scary, because nature is still kind of chaotic to some degree. So what does God do? He brings humans into the mix, and he tells them, fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over every living thing. In other words, continue my work of bringing order and restoring the chaos of creation. 
But then what happens? It takes Adam and Eve all of five minutes to forget all that stuff about having dominion over every living thing, and they start taking their advice from a snake. Five minutes, that's all it takes. And things don't get much better from there, and we know that. Because what happens? Brother kills brother. Tower of Babel. All kinds of crazy stuff keeps happening in the early verses of the Bible. And it gets to the point where in Genesis 6, the Bible tells us, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. That's the only picture of humanity that we have. But then, but then, Abram shows up. Abram comes on the scene, and God says something very different to Abram. Look with me at Genesis 15. He, that is the Lord, brought him, that's Abram, outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. In other words, what God is saying to Abraham is, look at stars. Look at all that stuff in the sky. My word did that. My word accomplished that. And now I am giving you my word. That very same word that created the stars, I'm giving you that word. And so from here on out, the offspring of Abram, Israel, is constantly asking, what is the word of the Lord? That's the central question of the Old Testament. You cannot read the Old Testament without understanding that. That is the central question. What is the word of the Lord? Why? Because the word gave the Israelites hope for a future. What did God say to Abram? So shall your offspring be. So it gave them a hope for the future. So that's our second major point this morning, if you're taking notes. God's word in the covenant had the power to give hope. So already we have healing and hope already showing up for us in the Bible, all stemming from God's word. The Israelites see the power of the word of the Lord through creation, and they then submit themselves to that word because they believe that God's word, the same word that created the earth, can create something great out of them. Let me illustrate it to you this way. I love music. Everybody, everybody loves music. I couldn't live without Spotify. And I specifically, I really love hip-hop. And I really love an artist right now. His name is Kendrick Lamar. You might know who he is. He's fantastic. He's the best. I really love his music because he's taught me a lot about race, about identity, about racism, about colorism, about all kinds of things. So why, why do I like his music? Because with his previous music, he's shown to me, he, the artist, has shown me his creative power through the things that he's already done. And so then I am inclined to listen to him in the future. And being a fan of an artist doesn't just mean that you like what they've already done. It doesn't mean that you just listen to what they've already done and appreciate that. It means that you anticipate what they'll come out with next, right? And so it's the same here with the Israelites. They not only worshipped God for his creation, they not only worshipped God because he was their creator, but they listened and anticipated when he would speak next. They were inclined to listen to him again because they knew him as their creator. Now, in this illustration, it just so happens that Kendrick is coming out with a new album this Friday, and I'm so excited that I can't focus on anything. But the Israelites did not have the benefit of knowing when God was going to speak again. Sometimes he would say a lot all at one time. Other times he wouldn't say too much. But then at one point, he just goes silent. Nothing, like dead silence, like Frank Ocean level silence for 400 and some odd years. 
I waited for four years for Frank, for Frank Ocean to put out new music, and that was agonizing enough. I cannot imagine 400 years of silence. Can you imagine that? I could count my watch for 40 seconds, and that would be insanely awkward. Now multiply that times a million. That is what they were facing. So they had nothing from God for 400 or more years. I'm just speculating there, 400 or more. So let's fast forward. It's 400 and some odd years later, and Jesus is with his disciples in the Sea of Galilee. We're in Mark 4 now. So here's what we have. It's the middle of the night, and Jesus is sleeping on the stern of the boat. Meanwhile, it's storming so bad that waves are filling the boat with water, and the disciples are afraid that this is it for them. So I'm reading, picking up here in Mark 4, um, verse 38. So the disciples woke Jesus and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? He's talking to the disciples now. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, does this story remind you of anything? The wind and the sea swirling around in darkness, calmed with a word. Hmm. Let's keep that in our minds. And let's fast forward just a little bit more. Jesus is hanging on the cross, accused of blasphemy. It is noon, and yet darkness has settled over the land while Jesus cries out, as we heard earlier, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the crowds mocked him, saying, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. Because the last thing God said to them before the silence was, I'm, bring, I'm sending you my prophet Elijah. And then silence. And so it's almost like they're mocking God. And they're saying, let's see if Elijah comes and saves him. And nothing happens. And with that, Jesus yielded up his spirit and died. Now, of course, we know, because we'll be celebrating it in a few days, that the grave could not hold Jesus. He came back to life. He appeared three days later. But just as soon as he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he's gone, and he leaves. And while he's leaving, he says, go tell the good news. Can you imagine that confusion? <laughs> you are experiencing, you're, let's, let's say you're an Israelite. Just imagine for a second you're an Israelite. Your people have been experiencing 400 years of silence from your God and then all of a sudden, this strange carpenter appears, and he's doing miracles, and he's speaking by his own authority, and then he gets himself killed, and then he comes back from the dead, and then he ascends again into heaven, telling you to go share the good news. What good news? He's gone! And you're still experiencing the silence from your God. You still have not heard anything. Here's, here's the key. The book of John is written somewhere around 50 or 60 years after this ascension of Christ. And the gospel is written, and it starts like this. This is starting in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. And suddenly, like that, it all makes sense. The Word was God. Back on the boat, the disciples are asking, who is this then that even the wind and sea obey him? The wind and sea obey him because they recognize his voice. 
They've heard that voice before. That voice has rebuked them once before in the foundation of the world. This voice who is speaking over the wind and the waves in Mark 4 is the same voice who we read in Genesis 1-3 who called chaos of creation into order. That is the very same word. Remember that the central question of the Old Testament was, what is the word of God? That's what they keep asking. They keep pursuing the word of God. What is the word of God? And for years, they heard nothing. But what is John telling us? What he's saying here is this. The word of God is not a what. It's a who. And his name is Jesus. So John continues and he says, all things were made through him. And without him, there was nothing made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Mm. Now, turn with me. Bring your attention back to the cross. Remember, remember how Jesus writes, or remember how, not Jesus, remember how Matthew writes that while Jesus is hanging on the cross, there's darkness over the land even though it's noon. What is that about? What is, what is that? It's imagery. It's an allusion to creation. God is pointing back to creation as if to say, look what happens to this world without the word. The word the very word, my word, is hanging on that cross. And look what happens when that word is silenced. When the word is truly silenced. Darkness. Now this isn't a real, you know, God is leaving the world so darkness ensues and, that's, and, and then chaos resumes. No, it's imagery. God is pointing us back to creation to remind us this Word is the same word that called chaos of creation into order, and now he's dying. He is dying. The same word that spoke light into existence is now snuffed out and darkness resumes. As I was preparing for this morning, I was reading commentaries, as one does, and I looked into this darkness that fell over Jerusalem uh, during the crucifixion, and I found a, a lot of commentators who included a paragraph or two about how it was, it was unlikely that there was literal solar eclipse at this time because there, was, there, wasn't, any, there wasn't one scheduled uh, for, for any of the, the, you know, the possible days that Jesus you know, is theorized to have been crucified. Um, and that may be true. That may be true. But regardless of what can be proven about the Bible, let me ask you this. What's more unbelievable? What is more astounding? That the world, that the world would experience an unscheduled eclipse or that God himself would come down from heaven's throne, would become flesh just like his creation, would dwell among his own creation, and then would die for the sins of his own creation and bear the full weight of their sin on the cross. Tell me, when was that scheduled? When was that scheduled? How do you explain that? John later tells us there can be only one explanation for this, and I think that you know what I'm going to say. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believe in him shall not perish. There's your healing, but have eternal life. There's your hope. And that brings us to our third major truth for this morning. God's word on the cross had the power to bring the ultimate hope and healing. The final hope and healing. You want healing? Look no further than Jesus Christ. And, and I, know, I know what you are tempted to think. I'm tempted to think this myself. I know what you're tempted to think. There are some complicated issues in my life. And I, I believe in Jesus. I trust in Jesus, Rob. But there are just some complicated issues that are going on in my life that can't just be solved by thinking of Jesus. But I, I want you to understand this morning, I'm not trying to give you some positive thinking mumbo-jumbo. And if you just turn your eyes to Jesus and click your heels, then all of your worries will just melt away. That's not what I'm telling you this morning. What I'm telling you this morning is that John 3.16 tells you that if you are a believer in and a follower of Christ, have faith. Because John is telling you that you have already been brought from death to life. That has already happened in your life. And if you have already been brought from death to life, what makes you think that the same Christ that accomplished that cannot accomplish anything else in your life? You have already been resurrected. There's no greater healing than that. You can't get more healed than death to life. You want hope? If you're a believer in and follower of Christ, the very same word who called the chaos of creation into order and took your sin upon himself, that very same word called chaos into order, bore your sin as his own, now lives inside of you if you're a believer in and follower of Jesus Christ. That is a guarantee from John 3.16. Now, remember what I said when we were talking earlier about Genesis 15. God is establishing his covenant with Abram, and he points to the heaven, and he says, look at that. Look at all that up there. My word created that. My word did that. That is the power of my word. And I'm giving that word to you. I'm giving that very same word to you. But listen, believer, if you are a believer in this room, God is pointing to the cross. He's turning your eyes to the cross. And he's saying, look at that cross. My word, the word did that. My word endured that for you. That is the power of my word. And I'm giving that very same word to dwell in you. That same word that hung on that cross now lives in you. Could there be any greater hope? Yes. There can, and there is. So turn with me to the very end of your Bible. We made it. The very end of your Bible. We've covered the whole Bible now. Very end of your Bible, Revelations 21. What does it tell us? Picking up in verse 1 of Revelation 21. Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first 
heaven and the first earth had passed away. And what? And the sea was no more. Chaos, gone. Death, gone. Sin, gone. On Easter, yes, we can celebrate the hope that we have on this side of heaven, in this life, that the word who died for us and rose for us now lives in our hearts. Yes, that is a great hope to have, that we can conquer life knowing that the word is living inside us. But let me tell you that Easter points us to an even greater hope when the sea will be no more. What does the sea mean? What did I tell you the sea means? The sea is chaos. In creation, the word of God spoke order into the chaos of creation, but he mitigated creation. He mitigated the chaos of, the chaos of creation, and he brought that in, under his control. But I still don't want to be floating out in the middle of the Atlantic because there's still chaos in this world. There's still chaos in my heart. But what does Revelation tell us? And by the way, this is the same John writing this that wrote for us, in the beginning, the Word was God. This is the same John that is revealing this to us. Easter points us to an even greater hope that that sea, that chaos in this world and in your heart will be no more. Chaos, gone. Death, gone. Sin, gone. All gone. Easter calls us to hope for a day when the sea shall be no more. That is what I want you to think about this Easter, this upcoming Sunday. I want you to rejoice in the risen Christ. I want you to rejoice in the fact that Christ died for your sins. But I want you to look even further into the future and realize that there is a day when the sea will be no more, when our faith shall be made sight, when the cloud will be rolled back as a scroll and the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend and we will finally all be able to sing without blame and without chaos. It is well with my soul. Let's pray. God, we, we bring you glory this morning. We bring you glory because you have shown us your power through creation, through the promise that you made in your covenant, and the power of your word on the cross. God, we bring you glory as our maker and our redeemer and our sustainer. God, on this earth, we hold fast to your son. We hold fast to your son as our hope. He has given us our healing, and now he's given us hope. But God, we look forward, and we hope toward the fullness of our healing. We rejoice that the word that you gave us, not only the word through your son, but the word through your scripture, tells us to hope, calls us to hope. We thank you, God, that we have an ultimate hope in your name. And we ask that as we approach this Easter season, that our hearts would be filled with praise, filled with praise for your glory. And it is in your Son's precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. Go in peace. You're dismissed.
For more information about Samford University, check out samford.edu.